On Saturday, December 6, 1941, Dorothy Edgers was at work at Navy Cryptography in Washington. She was a translator of intercepted Japanese messages. Because it was Saturday and not a weekday, the mood was lighter in the office. For many, the weekend was set to start that day at 12 noon. Edgers, though, would soon come across something that would make her day anything but light. Edgers was a relatively new employee, having worked there for a couple weeks. That morning, she was translating stolen messages that had been designated as non-urgent. A note to the Japanese Consul General of Honolulu caught her attention. It was sent four days prior from officials back in Tokyo. Given what we know now, the note contained ominous questions about Pearl Harbor. These included queries regarding anti-torpedo nets and American naval activity. While Edgars didn't know what we today know, that is, that the following day the Japanese would drop torpedoes to attack American battleships at Pearl Harbor, she was suspicious that she had found something important. She kept reading. Next, she found a long note to officials in Tokyo. It caused more alarm for Edgars. In the note, Tokyo officials learned the way intelligence would be relayed regarding American ships stationed at Pearl Harbor. Why were the Japanese planning to share intelligence regarding American naval activity? Edgars felt someone needed to see these messages. Despite initially being turned down by a superior, she kept translating the extensive message. The translation branch had arrived at the office, and she presented him the suspicious notes. However, she was turned down again. He took a look at it, but ultimately told her to leave it until the following week. America was that close to finding out about the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Would the Dorothy Edgars translation have helped American military leaders be better prepared than they actually were? One official thought so. Years later, he said, quote, The whole picture might have been different. The Dorothy Edgars episode wouldn't be the only chance the U.S. had to learn of the impending attack. There were numerous neglected stolen messages, like the one Edgars tried to get her superiors to pay attention to, as well as many overlooked warning signs, some clearer than others. America almost had a completely different fate than what happened at Pearl Harbor. As it happened, the day turned out to be tragic for the United States. Welcome to the Points of No Return in History. My name is Dave Knoll. This week, in the final narrative episode of the series, we will explore the attack on Pearl Harbor. America had a chance to be better prepared for the disaster, but they missed numerous warning signs. Instead, the attack took them by surprise. When the dust had settled, war in the Pacific had begun. In many ways, this episode is an addendum to the series. We already explored how Japan decided to attack Pearl Harbor. American readiness to defend its naval base would not have changed the emergence of the Pacific theater of World War II. Still, the missed chances for America to be better prepared fascinated me. There were extremely close calls of Pearl Harbor potentially being discovered. This would have possibly changed at least the initial phase of the conflict. I feel these close calls are pertinent to the series. They reinforce that there are many crossroads moments in the biggest events of history. And these stories push our narrative forward about how Pearl Harbor came to happen. Before we even get to the close calls, it's worth going over the ominous signs that the Japanese were going to attack. American officials were aware of the threat. As we noted in episode number three of this series, American Secretary of State Cordell Hull 
signaled that he was done negotiating with the Japanese at the end of November 1941, and that he expected the conflict to possibly move into a military phase. Hull was the primary negotiator for the United States with Japanese diplomats. Hull said to American War Secretary Henry Stimson regarding diplomacy, quote, I have washed my hands of it, and it is now in the hands of Ewan Knox, the Army, and the Navy, end quote. Frank Knox was Navy Secretary. Soon, the American military was officially warned to be ready for a Japanese attack. Officials communicated to Lieutenant General Douglas MacArthur, quote, Japanese future action unpredictable, but hostile action possible at any moment, end quote. This was one of many dispatches to military leaders. There were warning signs of a Japanese attack. For example, American intelligence discovered a Japanese note that ordered the use of dummy weather report broadcasts to communicate a potential breakdown in diplomacy. This has been called the, quote, WINS document. American officials went on high alert following the WINS document. It offered an insight into Japanese thinking about the sour state of negotiations and gave America more reasons to keep track of Japanese broadcasts. There were more ominous signs. On December 1st, American intelligence uncovered documents from Japanese officials commanding offices at London and other places to demolish their Enigma machines. American intelligence also found another ominous document, a dispatch sent by the Japanese ambassador in Germany. It read, quote, Should Japan become engaged in a war against the United States, Germany, of course, would join the war immediately. End quote. This was another sign that the war was imminent. With these types of signs, it seemed clear that a Japanese attack might happen soon. America, in addition, was close to knowing a whole lot more than this. They almost uncovered the Japanese plan itself for the Pearl Harbor ambush. Meanwhile, as we discussed in the opening to this episode, America was overlooking stolen documents that could have tipped off the attack on Pearl Harbor. U.S. officials didn't listen to Dorothy Edgars when she uncovered suspicious messages. There would be others America missed. Many of these came by way of stolen documents from a Japanese spy in Hawaii named Takeo Yoshikawa. As Yoshikawa sent reports back home to Japan, American intelligence was hard at work stealing them. However, the stolen messages were marked as low in importance. Translators, therefore, let them sit there. Had they translated these documents, they would have found evidence of an upcoming Pearl Harbor strike. For example, on December 5th, two days before the Pearl Harbor attack, Japanese officials asked Yoshikawa to provide information about U.S. naval activity. This is what he reported, quote, The following ships were in port on the afternoon of the 5th. Eight battleships, three light cruisers, 16 destroyers, end quote. While American intelligence captured this document, they didn't get around to taking a look at it. There was even a message from months prior to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that stayed mostly neglected. In September of 1941, a couple months before the attack, American intelligence stole a message regarding the layout of Pearl Harbor. The note was translated by December. American officials, however, wouldn't do much else with it from there. The Americans had missed multiple chances to pick up on Japanese battle plans. They had a general idea that Japan would attack, but where would that attack be? They would find out on December 7th. As a quick interlude, I wanted to ask you to rate and review the show. It really helps get the word out about what we're doing. 
Also, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. It really helps us out. I've heard some really encouraging feedback from a lot of you. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for your kind words. Now, back to the show. Japan did all they could to keep secret their plan to attack Pearl Harbor. Secrecy was necessary because a surprise attack would do the most damage. And they needed a successful first strike to have any chance of winning the war against America. In the larger picture, America was superior to Japan in a number of important factors related to war, such as industrial capacity. At the end of 1941, America did not have a fully functioning war machine. Yet, its potential was huge. Because of these things, Japan needed to win at the beginning and do enough damage to subvert American resolve. A long war would favor America. Therefore, the goal of the attack was to knock America down with a serious blow, hopefully one that they would never recover from. Pearl Harbor was a strategic target because America's Pacific naval fleet was stationed there. Take out their ships and open a path for Japan to expand in the South Pacific without American resistance. This is what Japan wanted. This plan was so secret, and a surprise attack so vital, that Japanese military leaders never even informed their diplomats in Washington. In fact, Japan never even officially declared war on the United States prior to Pearl Harbor. They just ended diplomacy. This brings us back to where we started the whole series, with the Japanese diplomats Kichi Saburo Nomura and Saburo Kurusu waiting to meet with American Secretary of State Cordell Hull on Sunday, December 7, 1941. With this meeting, negotiations between America and Japan were officially done. The Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor that morning. The two countries were at war. As the Japanese planes advanced on Pearl Harbor, the pilots were extremely anxious. They had prepared a long time for this moment. It was a little after 7.45 in the morning. Japanese pilots were looking to see if there would be any American resistance, that is, if their plan for secrecy had held up. Using Morse code, a Japanese plane messaged, quote, Charge! Communicating that the initial round of fighters were on the attack. Then, in what has become a famous dispatch, the same plane messaged, quote, Torah, Torah, Torah. This communicated that the secret had held up, that the Americans weren't aware of the ambush. Meanwhile, from the American perspective, the surprise attack caught everyone unprepared. It was chaos. Many didn't suspect it was an attack at first. They thought it was something else, like possibly some kind of an exercise. Admiral Husband E. Kimmel sent a message at 8 o'clock, that is, 10 minutes after the attack began. Quote, Air raid on Pearl Harbor. This is no drill. End quote. There were explosions everywhere. The sounds of the Japanese fighter planes filled the harbor and the surrounding areas. American military leaders tried to scramble a defense. They tried to get their planes in the air and their anti-aircraft guns firing. As the Japanese took out more and more battleships, American sailors tried to escape. They jumped off their ships. Oil on the water, however, caught fire and killed many. It was a horrific experience. The attack lasted about an hour. When it was all over, the Japanese wiped out two battleships, weakened six more, and took out over 180 aircraft, many of which were parked on airfields. Many more ships were hit. Over 2,300 Americans perished. It was a devastating day for America. But for Japan, it was a success. The Pacific War to follow would initially follow this result. Japan controlled things as the war got underway.
Pearl Harbor was the turning point from peace to war between America and Japan. The conflict that followed was brutal. It was long, bloody, and changed the course of the 20th century. In the short term, Japan was dominant in the war. They won in Hong Kong. They won in the Philippines. They won in Singapore. It seemed like its strategy of a quick strike on America, followed by early victories, was going to work. However, in the long term, the war progressed exactly as Japan feared. It became a protracted war. America had the upper hand in this scenario. Once its war machine became fully functional, it was superior to Japan's military capabilities. America started to push Japan back into mass victories. The war lasted until September of 1945. The Japanese surrendered after America dropped two atomic bombs. The stats of the Pacific theater of World War II are gruesome. By the end, two million Japanese died from military causes. Sickness and hunger led to even more death. On the American side, 100,000 died. These were the consequences of the Pacific War. We'll stop recounting the story of the World War II Pacific Theater here. The main thrust of this podcast series has been about how it got to this, how it got to the point of Japan attacking America. It got there after many months of negotiating in 1941, negotiations that came about when Japanese expansion clashed with American interests. As Japan took Manchuria, invaded China, and took Indochina, America became nervous about the growing power of the Japanese empire. The United States wanted to preserve its trade interests in the region and keep Japanese aggression in check. Japan looked to keep growing its empire out of economic need and by motivation of a pan-Asian ideology. These negotiations didn't go well. Japan prepared for war at the same time it negotiated. War preparations and a priority for expansion ultimately shot down their attempts at diplomacy. America, meanwhile, wouldn't budge on its priorities. Its desire for free trade in East Asia, which was something that Japan threatened, and its commitment to China as an ally. A major theme of this podcast has been the idea that little things contributed to a breakdown in negotiations. Little things like miscommunication, such as Hull and Nomura lacking clarity when discussing the draft understanding. This was something we explored in the first episode of the series. Or little things like mistranslation, a mistake, for example, American intelligence made when preparing documents for Hull. This was something we explored in the third episode of the series. Did these little things lead to war? One scholar disputes this assertion. Historian Richard B. Frank says this claim, quote, elevates mood and subjective factors over the real issue of terms mirroring irreconcilable strategic objectives, end quote. Of course, my contention is not that little things solely led to war, but that they made a significant and less well-known contribution to it. Frank is absolutely right in his assessment that there existed, quote, irreconcilable strategic objectives, end quote, between Japan and America. In addition to America's interest in preserving its trade interests in East Asia, America, as Frank reminds us, wanted to keep Japan in check to stop it from invading American allies in the region, the Soviet Union and Western European colonies. This was largely out of its desire to preserve the focus of these allies on the war against Germany and Europe. One thing we do know is that when Japan and America were unable to come to an agreement, a devastating war followed. In our first series, we covered how Hitler became Chancellor and how this was a turning point towards the European theater of World War II. The breakdown in negotiations between Japan and America in 1941 was an equivalent scenario for the Pacific theater of World War II. We know the story of World War II well. However, we aren't as well versed in how the war came about, 
especially the ways in which small moments were turning points on the path to war. Small moments such as the meeting between Franz von Papen and Adolf Hitler, which led to the Hitler Chancellorship, or the miscommunication between Japan and America. Hopefully this podcast, The Points of No Return in History, is helping to fill in the gaps of how momentous events in history came about, and how small, crossroads moments are a large part of the story. Thank you for listening to The Points of No Return in History. This concludes the narrative portion of our series, Japan Attacks America and the Small Things That Led to It. I am grateful for three historians whose works I have consulted for this series. This includes John Tolan's book, The Rising Sun, Ari Hada's book, Japan 1941, and Richard B. Frank's book, Tower of Skulls, A History of the Asia-Pacific War, July 1937 through May 1942. For a more in-depth look at the build-up to Pearl Harbor, these are great resources. A commenter and review of this podcast on iTunes asked if there was any connection between the various series. I thought this was a great question. So in my next episode, which will be released in two weeks, I will explore this thought and chart a path for the podcast moving forward. The episode will be a little different than what I've done so far, but I'm very excited about it. Have a great one, everybody.